In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. One of my kids' favorite games to play is Would You Rather. Would you rather, for example, have everything you eat turn into peanut butter or have it turn into jelly? That's not how this works, William. Would you rather lose your hearing or would you rather lose your sight? Would you, I'm going to get a little more morbid here. Would you rather fall to your death or drown? Oh. Oh. <laughs> so, so many people's like, neither? <laughs> um, would you rather be roasted over an open fire to death? Would you rather freeze to death in an icy lake? Would you rather have palm branches brought down and tied to your arms and then released? Or would you rather die peacefully in your sleep? I'm pretty sure most of you are picking the latter. It sounds a lot better. However, I bring that last one up because our ancient fathers and mothers way back in the early centuries of our faith, would have actually preferred to die in those other ways than they would to die peacefully in their sleep. To die for Christ, assuming those deaths were for Christ, to die for Christ was considered the most honorable way, the most honorable thing that can happen in your life. And that's hard, I think, for us to grasp we don't wish that upon anyone. And if Cody was somehow arrested and then roasted openly over a fire because he would not deny Christ, we would think, man, that was terrible. But that is actually not how the Bible talks about it, nor is it how Christianity has talked about it until fairly recently in history. It would have been, Cody is lucky, if you can allow me to say that. We wish that we could be in Cody's place. That's what Jesus is going to tell us tonight. And we need to like under, try to understand tonight why he orients us this way. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. This is the eighth of the eight Beatitudes. 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That... That concludes, that, that uh, creates a bookend for how he started the first beatitude. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, snake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that shows you that it opened, these beatitudes open with the promise of these are the people who live in the kingdom, and then it closes with these are the people who live in the kingdom to show us that all of these eight virtues, which are Christ's own virtues, he lived all of these, these are what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven. And in each of these virtues, Christ was the example of all of them, especially and perhaps most obviously, persecution. Christ was persecuted by his own people. 
Christ was even betrayed by his own disciples. He knew how to be persecuted. He therefore knows what he's saying when he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's remember that the word blessed is the Greek word makarius. And that's important because there's another Greek word which is not used, and both these words are translated blessed. So eulogy is a Greek word which means to give blessing or to receive blessing. We bless God, God blesses us. That's a verb. But makarius is not a verb. It's a description. Makarius is talking about what the good life, the blessed life looks like. It's describing people who are blessed are pe- people who live in the blessed life are people who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who do mourn their sins, who do seek and hunger after righteousness and so forth. This is what the way Macarius can be translated is the good life. This is what the good life looks like. Not having all of your possessions met, not having the house in the right property, not having a career where you keep climbing and get more power. Like these are many of the things that Americans seek as the good life, or maybe just Netflix and chill is the good life for many people. Um, Jesus is saying, this is the good life. These virtues is what a good life is. We have to reorient our priorities and our values. So another way to put it, the good life, that's perhaps the way culture would say it. Um, the, a biblical vision is the Edenic life. Edenic thriving and flourishing is what Macarius describes. Macarius is the word in the Greek translation of Genesis, uh, of um, Psalm 1, when it says, Blessed are the ones who don't walk with sinners, but delight in the law of the Lord, for they grow like a tree by rivers, and its leaves don't wither, and its fruit is always there in season. That psalm is describing the Garden of Eden. And that psalm is saying those who pray these prayers and make these prayers part of their lives, they will begin to flourish like a tree in Eden. And that word makarius, which begins the whole psalms, is the same word Jesus uses here when he says, blessed are the persecuted. This is Edenic flourishing, willingness to suffer for the sake of righteousness and Christ. This is why our ancient brothers and sisters would see Cody get mutilated in a terrible way and say, he's blessed. This is Edenic thriving. How is that possible? Well, this beatitude, closing all eight, um, remember these are, uh, yeah, closing all eight, uh, it continues, and I'm going to explain why it continues with a ninth blessed, Um, And then we'll go through verse 16 here. So then he continues in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. 
but rather on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That concludes his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Next week, we go into the main body, and he'll give us the thesis of this whole sermon. This is just the beginning. This is just him saying, this is Christianity. This is what it's like to become like me. And he then, so we go through the eight Beatitudes, okay? And remember that we described them, this blessed life, this good life, is they're, they're arranged to be like a ladder. We start with poverty of spirit which leads us to mourning our sins, which leads us to a meek and gentle disposition, which leads us to hungering because we've realized we're so impoverished, to hungering after God and his righteousness. Those first four are how we approach God. It's the disposition of our hearts before him. The last four are what he does when we come to him with such a disposition. He fills us and then works through us in the last four, that he makes us merciful. He makes us pure. He makes us peacemakers. And we see we're going up in the virtues to where we're actually beginning to put the world together and to heal things and then the last and the eighth one the top of this ladder is blessed are the persecuted so what we see is if we are willing to become like christ to allow his grace to come to us and work these virtues in us it's not that we just do these things occasionally but that we become these things that we are these virtues this is who we are because he's renewing our nature that if we stick with this and we keep growing persecution is the promised reward So result number one of the Beatitudes, if we become like Christ, result number one is that you will be persecuted. That's why after the eighth Beatitude, blessed are the persecuted, there's one more blessed after, but it's not a new Beatitude. Because you've noticed how the book ends, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, has closed off. And now what's happening is he mentions persecution again because he's showing us that this is the result. This is the culmination of being Christ-like. So it's, it's uh, what scholars call eight plus one. You have the eight, and then the eight is repeated to emphasize a result. It's the culmination. So that's why in verse um, 11, we have that redundancy, if you will. So that's a result of being Christ-like, is persecution. The second result, though, is that we become the salt of the earth. So lest we become distressed and lose heart, Jesus wants us to know that this isn't just a self-righteousness program. This isn't just a, I'm going to find my best life now kind of a thing. It's going to result in persecution. Um, But it's also going to result in saving the world. Salt. Salt was used primarily in ancient times for preserving food. I don't know if you know this, but you can just rub meat down with a lot of salt and actually preserve it. Um, It was also used as a flavor, like we do today. And uh, so salt would bring flavor, it would bring life to something you're eating, it would also sustain the life of what you wanted to eat, lest it corrupt and rot away. Now, in the fall, 
when we sinned, when, the, when sin entered the world and the human nature became corrupted, that corruption got worse and worse and worse and has been getting worse until Christ came and Christ came as salt to our corruption. He stopped our corruption and gave us a way to renew our nature in him. And so the Christian and the church is supposed to be salt. If we grow and live in these Christ-like virtues, then we are salt with flavor that will cause the corruption to slow down. But if we choose to ignore these virtues and these beatitudes, then we lose our saltiness. How do we save the world? Grow in the virtues of Christ. You become salt. So, grow in the Beatitudes, you get persecuted. Grow in the Beatitudes, you become salt. Grow in the Beatitudes, and you are the light of the world. The third and final result of growing like Christ is we are the light of the world. Notice um, it talks about a city. It's not like you're one solitary candle in darkness. It's all the people got together makes the city that is seen on a hill. This is what we see in the darkness. Now, if you're a traveler in the dark, it's not just like you're like, like we do today. Like we go up to Strawberry Peak, right? And we look out at midnight on the city and we're like, wow, that's so beautiful. And then we get back into our safe cars with our headlights and we go home to our lit homes. Like it's not like that. Back in the day, if you're a traveler caught out in the night, finding light on a hill was salvation. It meant I don't have to stay the night on the road and get mugged by robbers, It meant that I have a safe place to be. This is what it means to be the light of the world. The church becomes a city on a hill. And people who are sick of the darkness will say, there is light. Another thing that we forget about light, though, is, and I I honestly never considered this until um, recently an author pointed it out, uh, that we actually don't understand light biblically. Because what we have is, you know what light is? What is light in its essence? It's not a light switch. It's not wires. It's fire. There is no light outside of fire. What lights the world? The fire of the sun. What lights even the night? The fire of the sun reflecting on the moon. What lights ancient homes? Fire on the candle or on the lamp. See, today we have controlled fire. It's called electricity. The fire runs on cables and it stays in a little bulb where it's safe. So we don't quite understand. To us, light is just brightness. But to an ancient biblical worldview, light was more than brightness. Light was warmth. Light was how you cooked your food. Light had important purposes. We are the fire of the earth. Not the fire that destroys, but the fire that warms and rescues. So these are the results that we have um, if we grow in the Beatitudes. So, brothers and sisters, quite frankly, I believe one of the reasons the American church is losing its effectiveness in our culture is because we have forgotten to be like Christ. Being like Christ is not answering in every situation, what would Jesus do? Being like Christ is actually taking on these qualities as who we are. If we're not poor in spirit, we're not going to bring light to the world. 
If we don't mourn our sins, we're just going to yell at everyone else's sins. If we are not meek, then we're just going to manipulate people into getting saved. If we don't hunger after righteousness, we're going to hunger after being cool and hip and accepted by the world. If we don't hunger after mercy, you get what I'm saying? This is how Jesus tells us to be missionaries, is to be growing in his nature. Now, okay, we see what he's saying. Like, we, we have a person who embodies all these virtues, is like Jesus, and, and you go, what's not to love? How can a person like that be persecuted? If you found a spouse who embodied all of these virtues, I did, um, you'd be like, you'd be like, what's not to love? And, and honestly, you have to think about it. If you saw someone who embodied all eight beatitudes, you think that is the ideal person. Because truly, that is the ideal person. Christ is describing the way the human being is meant to be when they walk in communion with God all of their life without any sin interrupting that communion. That's the ideal. This is the way humans are meant to flourish. This is the ideal person. And you would think we would like bow down before the person like this. We bow down before their feet, not punch them in the face with persecution. Like, what is the deal? Why is it that this person is guaranteed persecution? In John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says this, or we're not sure if it's Jesus saying or if he stops saying and John says it, but nonetheless, it's John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People hate the light. If you're the traveler and want to be in the dark, you hate that city, which is ruining your darkness party. This is why we're persecuted. Even Christ, the pure light, came and he was killed by the darkness. He was hated by the darkness. People don't want to see Christ in this world. They want to eliminate him from this world If we want to properly understand persecution, we have to understand that. The darkness hates the light. But also, Genesis chapter 3, we see the beginning of persecution. Um, You might remember this. You can turn there if you want, but I will just read it quickly. It's Genesis 3 verse 15. It's right after Adam and Eve sin, they have done something with the devil, which is the opposite of what we're made to do. We're made to do stuff with God. So they've communed with the wrong being from the wrong tree. Um, And then God speaks and says to the serpent, I will put enmity, that's hostility, that's hatred, that's fighting. I will put enmity between you, the devil, and the woman. He doesn't say Eve. He says the woman. And I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, the woman's offspring. The woman's offspring will crush his head, but the snake will have a chance to bite his heel. So there's depicted here two types of people. Some people will be of the serpent because they're going to commune with darkness. Others will be 
people of the woman because they will commune with the light, with Christ, with God. There's two kinds of people. They will be at enmity. They, the evil, the sons of the serpent, will continually bite at the children of God. But the children of God will ultimately have the final say and crush the head of the evil one. That's what Genesis is saying. That the whole story from this point on is because humans have given themselves over to the devil and some will be converted and come back to God, there's always always going to be enmity within humanity. Now, the reason for this is not because humans hate humans. Please don't think that. It's because the devil is behind all hatred. The devil is behind all persecution. It's the devil and his influence on his offspring, which is the source of all persecution. So Genesis from Genesis 3.15, we go right into the next chapter, Genesis 4. And what happens? Cain kills Abel. Cain is of the devil. Abel is of God. Uh, we even know this because 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says, why did Cain kill Abel? Because he was of the evil one and his deeds were wicked. The darkness hates the light. The seed of the serpent fights against the seed of the woman. Um, then you continue on in the story. Just a few examples. Ishmael fought with Isaac. Isaac was of the seed of the woman. Ishmael's of the seed of the serpent. So Ishmael fought with Isaac. We have... Um, the brothers of Joseph fighting against Joseph, trying to betray him and get him killed. We have Saul fighting against David. We have the Jews, uh, the unbelieving Jews fighting against the prophets throughout the Old Testament. We have Herod fighting against John the Baptist, John the forerunner. And then, of course, we have the religious leaders of Jerusalem fighting against Christ. And then after that, we have the religious leaders fighting against Stephen. And then after that, we have continued persecution and hostility against Christ's church and his people, and it hasn't stopped. It was bad under the Roman Empire. It was terrible under some of the Soviet Union and uh, other communi- atheistic communist fas- uh, factions um, over in the eastern parts of the world. And it was, it's been, and it hasn't stopped. To this day, Christians are continually killed and continually persecuted. Um, so this is where it all comes from. We have to understand that at its, at its core, persecution is not just people don't like your religion. Persecution is always the devil. Now, sometimes his, his opposition against you will come through a person. That's usually what we call persecution when the devil opposes us through people. But actually, sometimes he chooses not to oppose us through people. Sometimes he chooses to oppose us through various means. Sometimes in the Bible, we see demons are sometimes the cause of people's illnesses. Sometimes demons um, try to, in, in Mark, he actually describes the storm at sea. Uh, he doesn't say there's demons in the storm, but Jesus rebukes the storm the same way he rebukes a demon out of a demon-possessed person. Sometimes Satan is opposing us in all kinds of ways. And here, brothers and sisters, is the primary way that we experience persecution. He opposes our growth in Christ. He opposes your growing in the Beatitudes. Is America persecuted? Absolutely. Because the devil has found a way to stop the church without using the government and hardly at all using our peers or our neighbors. You are persecuted every day you wake up to pray. Or you don't, because the devil kind of won on that one. You see, he's always warring against us. We are always oppressed and always pressed. He is 
persecuting us. Our primary persecutor is the devil. Sometimes our persecutor is the people he uses. Now, um, so we see that mostly in the rest of the world. A lot of the time he uses people to do his work. Um, Now, why then does Jesus say that to be persecuted is to be blessed? Why does he say that our reward is great? I mean, all of this sounds pretty horrendous from an American point of view. Think about this. Because if you're persecuted, it's proof that you are of the offspring of God. It's proof that you are light because darkness hates the light. If you are not persecuted, you must say, oh, wait a minute. What is going on? If there is no, if the devil can care less about you, it means he already has you. You should find persecution as a means of rejoicing is what he's saying. It's because it is proof. It's the badge that I am Christ's. I look like Christ. And that should be a, a, a reason for great rejoicing. Uh, think of, I actually just drew in here uh, a little trophy on my notes because that's what persecution is. Think of it as a trophy. When you're persecuted, raise that trophy up and say, thank you, Lord, that people see your salt and light in me. This is what Jesus wants us to get at, is that there are things more important in this world than just our comfort. Actually becoming like him is so important. Getting hurt or opposed or killed for that, that's why the early church crowned people who died for their faith. We know that they pleased Christ because they died like him. So Jesus encourages us to see things a little bit differently. Now, it would be ill of me not to mention, or at least ask, because I think our times are changing. Is, is persecution, in a physical sense, coming to America? Um, now, a lot of you have seen our nation a lot longer than I have. And I think you can tell most of us that, yes, our country's changing. I can see it in my own lifetime. Just look at COVID, how much that changed everything in our country. There is, if you pay attention to the news, and I hope you don't pay too much attention to it, um, but even just a casual observation will show you that there is an angst within our, bless you, there is an angst within our culture to be forward-thinking and progressive. And that if we are not moving forward, then we are getting behind. And now America actually feels, we feel that other countries, especially in Europe, are ahead of us. And so in politics, there's this big angst to catch up, catch up to the rest of the world. We once led the world, now we're behind. So there's a lot of agendas being pushed, aren't there? Because we got to catch up with the times. No one's asking where this road's going, but that's that's another thing. We just got to hurry up on that road. Um, This American catch-up, if you will, is what will bring persecution to the church. I guarantee if our country continues on, and I think it will, just in different forms maybe, uh, the church is going to be persecuted on this soil. It will. Um, I mean, barring a radical turnaround of things in our country, of course, that's possible. But remember, we're seeing that persecution is not outside of God's will. We think it is. But nowhere in history or the Bible do we see that presented. So it's my belief that we're headed that way and the church will actually 
become salt and light to this land again. Now, why do I think this? Well, if we just observe um, the way that Christianity has been treated in our country, first, back in the early days, Christianity was admired. Christians were looked up to. They were the examples. Then over time, Christians got tolerated. Yeah, you can be here. And yeah, I mean, we understand that you're a good example, but we've got other things too. Now we've hit a tipping point where we're not just tolerated, we're actually ridiculed. Every time, almost every time Christianity is presented in the media, it's in ridicule. Maybe not always directly ridiculed, but it's put in a context of, oh, that's hilarious. It's demeaning. You know what the next step is after ridicule? Attack. Humor softens the blow so the attackers don't even realize that they're doing anything evil. So we have now, I see, we've hit a tipping point where we're now on the downward slope. We are now in the zone of ridicule and the next is attack. Now it could be a couple generations. It could be as soon as my lifetime. You don't know how fast that will go, but this is our direction and where we're headed. I say all of this not to make you worry (laughs) because we should actually have the viewpoint of Jesus. Blessed are you. Great is your reward. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Salt and light is coming to the church again. But what we need is to have the virtues, the backbones, the strength to walk through these things. It's only the person who has all the beatitudes that can find persecution a joy. Because that person has become so one with Christ that the opinions of the world don't matter anymore. But right now, the church cares so much about what the world thinks of us that we're willing to change our views on things or change our worship so that the world can accept us. We're not a virtuous church. We care too much about what people think of us. And so when persecution starts, just a little ridicule, like, oh, no, 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 we're not like that. We don't actually hate those things or, or, dis, or call those things sin. Or, like, we, we're not. Uh, we aren't there. We need to walk in the virtues of Christ. So what he tells us to do, and I think this is significant, the very end here, verse 16, uh, is the very first command that Jesus gives in the sermon. Everything's been descriptive so far. Well, he did say rejoice and be glad. So there you go. That's one command. So I guess it's technically the second command. He then says in verse 16, let your light shine before others. Because what can happen is it's so easy to read and say, wait a minute, don't draw attention to us because if the world notices that I'm a Christian, I might be persecuted. He's saying, forget about that. Rejoice in that and let your light shine. Let your light shine. What does that mean? What does this light shining refer to? Well, keep reading. It says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So since this is the conclusion of the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is wrapping up back to the Beatitudes. He's saying these virtues are your light. Live these, become these, be one with Christ in these, and you will be shining light. So let this light shine and people will see it. They will see who you are and what you do, and they will reconsider their life. They will reconsider God, perhaps. They might hate him or they might give glory to him. But let people see your light. So his exhortation to us is grow in such a way that the virtues of Christ, the Beatitudes, this 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 Edenic flourishing is so much a reality of who you are that it is like this bright, bl- flaming, blazing thing. 
who was it? West, one of the Wesleys, I think, said, like, they pray, like, Lord, let, set me so on fire that people come just to watch me burn. It might have been Whitfield. I can't remember. Some English guy. Um, that's what he's asking us to do. Remember, light isn't just, boom, I'm blinding you. And everyone's like, sunglasses. It's fire. Become fire to the world. Now, uh, John Chrysostom, who is our first commentator on the book of Matthew in church history, um, he writes about this. He says, let your virtue, the Beatitudes, let your virtue be great and the fire abundant and the light unspeakable. For when virtue is so great, it cannot lie hidden, though its possessor shade it over 10,000 fold. If you possess these Beatitudes, you can try all you want to make sure nobody notices who you are. He says it will shine forth anyways because just the disposition of your soul will be noticed by people. So, brothers and sisters, keep growing in Christ. Don't be content with the I'm saved and forgiven and I'm just going to do my own thing. Jesus has described to us the good life and he's asking us to press into this and as we do, we are lit on fire. Our light shines and the world is changed. Some may pour water on you. Some may find life in you. doesn't matter. You're pleasing your Father in heaven. So, question for us. What, is, what are we called to? Are we called to security? To be safe? To have everything predictable? To make sure that we keep our friends our friends? An outsider's admirable toward us. Is, is our goal security or is our goal responsibility? That we are actually saved for the sake of the world, for the life of the world. That Christ calls us to become like him so that the world will know him. We have a responsibility, but you can't have both. Security takes you out of your responsibility. Your responsibility sacrifices your security. Because, yeah, you might end up persecuted. But great is reward in heaven. Be glad, he says. Let your light shine. So my last thought on this um, is one of the things I found helpful. I can't. Okay. I, I think what it was was one day I was reading. I started reading about the lives of old dead Christians sometimes called saints, sometimes just called old dead Christians. I started reading about their lives and how many of them were persecuted and the wicked ingenuity of the Romans and then later the Muslims, the, the inventive ways they found to kill Christians. And then later the, uh, the uh, communistic regimes. Like It is complete. I could never invent such evil. Um, you're reading about these lives and you see the way they handle it, not cowering. In fact, some of them having their wits about them, laughing, praying, singing, having the wherewithal to actually talk back to their accusers in a respectful way, but having to banter with them. Uh, one of the saints was uh, being roasted and then uh, he just yelled out, are you going to turn me over or what? Because I think I'm done on this side. <laughs> I, I mean, 
Okay, the strength they had and the rejoicing they have in suffering. I'm reading that going, Lord, I don't think I could do that. And then he told me, I'm not sure exactly how, but at some point I came to the realization, which must be from the Lord, it's because, Brandon, you don't know how to follow me the way they followed me. So I decided to find out how they followed him. Oh, wow. Fasting was normal for old Christians. Oh, they prayed the Psalms. Oh, like all these realizations came about. And I was like, I think something's clicking. So one of the reasons, um, as you guys know, for the last few years, the Lord has led our church toward a more liturgical direction is because I am convinced that God designed us to worship him in a way that grounds us in his reality. Verse is, uh, if all you do is wing it in your worship to God, it's whatever you feel like or whatever happens or whatever is kind of the the new flavor of the month. Um, If all you do is wing your worship to God, what happens when those wings get cut off? Because that's what persecution does. But what I would read about so many during the Soviet persecutions is that when they had no Bibles, they had no church, they were isolated from Christians over and over there saying what sustained them was the liturgies of their church. They could recite their church services. They could recite the prayers. These things were so inside them. And this is, I think, important for a country that value over values uh, originality. Um, there is obviously room for both, but we overemphasize winging things. And God wants to strengthen us with a foundation and something. So that's what he said to me. How did they do it? Because they were rooted. And I felt like an unrooted lost child during COVID. I was like, I don't know what's going on. Every single pastor that I've read books about are all saying different things about what to do right now. All have different opinions about what's going on. Meanwhile, there were other Christians who seemed to be so rock solid in what to do, they just carried on. I was like, I'm missing something. I'm missing roots. I can't just rely on the whims of living authors. They're helpful because they live in my time. But the dead ones are also helpful because they see things that I'm prejudiced against because I grew up in this. So I think, brothers and sisters, it's important that we develop a liturgical lifestyle, that we learn to discipline ourselves. That's all that means, is you discipline yourselves to an order, that we fast regularly, whatever that is for you, monthly, weekly, um, but you do it regularly. You pray regularly, especially scripture. We pray scripture, that we get these prayers into us, that we don't just pray only what's on the top of our head. Um, and all, all these various ways that we find our practices are not just things we do, but they're things that become making us like Christ. That they're all for the sake of godliness and for becoming the light of the world. So just sort of some of my uh, hard to articulate, but that I just wanted to like dump that personal feeling on you guys because I do think that these are important components to becoming a church that is future proof that will 
keep going no matter what the world thinks about it. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen.